You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in the first gospel of the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew, and you can find where you see a big number five in that gospel. It's the gospel of Matthew chapter five. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 2 today. Gospel of Matthew, it's in the New Testament, it's the second half of your Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. My church family, hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. My friends, my family, this is the word of the Lord. Can we say thanks be to God? Let me pray for the preaching of this word. Jesus, you have opened your mouth. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart as I preach be pleasing to you. You are our king. You are the king of glory. Spirit of the living God, speak through your word and speak through your imperfect servant, me, this morning. Help me to hear these words. Follow these words and teach these words. It's in Christ's name I pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. Well, we begin our sermon series today on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, these are some of the most well-known words and phrases and teachings of Jesus, but they're also some of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus as, as well. Both believers and non-believers flock to Jesus' teaching. Even Jonathan Heights, who was born into a Jewish family, later became an atheist and now is a prolific author. You may have read some of his books, The Happiness Hypothesis or Coddling of the American Mind. And he's also a professor of social psychology. Now, he's an atheist, and he is fascinated with Jesus's sermon here. I once listened to an interview with Professor Height where he said he, he couldn't get over the wisdom of Jesus. He couldn't get over the practical teachings of Jesus. And bear in mind, he is an atheist. He was even surprised at what he taught. The thing that, that most utterly amazed him was Jesus' statement, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do you know this one? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's still the log in your eye? Now first, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He was amazed at Jesus' wisdom and teaching. And the thing is, Professor Heights is no different than Jesus' first hearers in the first century. We read this in Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29 at the end of Jesus' sermon. And when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And keep in mind that many who heard Jesus' words here, they were astonished, but they lived their lives not believing that Jesus was who he said he was, the Savior King. They're living their lives as Jesus is just kind of this advisory board for their life, that maybe I'll take his advice. And sadly, I think that many in the church slip into this lane all too frequently, where we teach, treat Jesus as an advisor rather than Savior King. See, Jesus was not just teaching to the irreligious pagans, to the crowds. He was also teaching to the pharisaical, self-righteous, and the religious. But Jesus is telling his disciples here on this hill, the Sermon on the Mount, that you are to look radically different than the irreligious and the religious. Later in chapter 6, he'll say, do not be like them. Do not be like them. Instead, he will say, I want you to be salty, y'all. I want you to be bright lights like a city set on a hill. You might be asking, how? How are they to do this? Well, throughout this sermon series, what I hope you see from all the way chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7 is that Jesus wants our outward reality to match up with our inward reality. He wants our actions, our hands, to match up with our hearts, our motivations. This is the whole point. This is the aim of the sermon. This is what it looks like to flourish, to be alive in God, in Christ Jesus. And I love the way that it is depicted in our sermon series artwork here, created by our own member, Greg Hartman. He writes this in his explanation of his artwork. He says, as I designed the artwork for the Sermon on the Mount, I was captivated by Pastor Tim Mackey's iceberg imagery. He's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. He explained that Jesus's intention was to reveal the heart's motivation underneath our actions. Jesus takes a deep dive beneath the surface of the Ten Commandments and exposes this massive iceberg of human brokenness and selfishness and says, that's the real issue. For this piece, I've illustrated a sunrise casting its rays on not only the Ten Commandments, but also the cracked and brokenness that lies beneath the surface of our actions down deep into the iceberg of our hearts. See, when we look at this image on the screen, We'll see the Ten Commandments all the way up at the point of the mount. And it's just not our actions that Jesus is interested in. It's our motivations as well. 
not just our actions, just our motivations. But before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this sermon, we must do some work on the front end. We must do some work. And what I want to invite you into this morning is to come and listen to the one who has come down to us. If you're going to take anything away from this morning, it's to come and listen to the one who has first come down to us. And we'll see this in two points. First, we'll look at the two mounts. The two mounts. And second, we will look at the two prophets. So y'all with me this morning? Got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2? You with me? Let's dive in. The two mounts. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five major teaching discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. So the first teaching discourse, Sermon uh, on the Mount, verses uh, chapters 5 through 7. Then we have the second teaching discourse. It's the mission discourse in chapter 10. The third discourse comes in chapters 16 through 18. That's the teaching on the church. And then we have the, the fourth teaching discourse, the parables of the kingdom. And finally, we have the fifth, the Olivet Discourse in chapters 23 to 25. Now, these are big teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is the first. However, if we hop into the sermon at this point in the story, it'd kind of be like reading the second novel in a trilogy, like reading The Two Towers before reading uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Or be like watching your favorite uh, Netflix series, Stranger Things, or Downton Abbey, or The Crown, starting at season two without even starting back at season one. It'd be confusing. You wouldn't know what's going on. And so even though we're in chapter five, we have to do some reconnaissance work here. We have to go back to where all stories start, the beginning. In Matthew's gospel in chapter one, Jesus is born to the prophesied virgin Mary. And he comes from the promised line of David because he's the Davidic king. But then King Herod gets nervous and he calls for the execution of all boys underneath the age of two. So Jesus and his parents flee to Egypt and they return to Nazareth in chapter two. In chapter three, we meet a unique character. It's Jesus's locust and honey eating, camel hair wearing, crazy cousin, John the baptizer, who is prepping the way for Jesus, the Lord, to come. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River for repentance into the kingdom of God. And here comes his cousin, Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes in and we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity in just a small couple verses. We see the Father's approval of the Son. As the Son of Man, Jesus is baptized into the Jordan and the Spirit of God descends as a dove. And then in chapter 4, Jesus is tempted and tried for 40 days as he prepares himself for ministry. Before he ever, ever goes up on a mount, he first, first goes down into the valley. And we see him in the remainder of chapter 4, all throughout Galilee, preaching repentance for the kingdom of God, healing the sick, raising the dead, seeing the lame walk and giving sight to the blind, and at this news, crowds flock to Jesus. 
And we read this at the end of chapter 4. It says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. That just means ten cities. Deca, ten, polis, city. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. See, for Jesus, demonstration of the kingdom of God comes first. Then comes the proclamation of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus didn't come just to address the outward problems that need healing. He wants to address a deeper issue, the issues of the heart that can only be healed through spirit and word. The same goes for the life of disciples. The deeds of Jesus always draw people into the teachings of Jesus. It's kingdom demonstration, then kingdom proclamation, which is what we see Jesus doing next as the crowds come to him. We read this in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, Matthew here, in Matthew's gospel, everybody say gospel. Gospel means good news. Can you say good news? It does not mean good advice. Gospel means good news. It's not good advice. Jesus' teaching here is not good advice. This is good news. And what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus' storyline parallels Israel's storyline in the Exodus. And he wants to draw specific attention to the mount. He goes up on a mount. Now, mountains in ancient times, as it is today, were high places where God spoke to the people and revealed himself to the people. We still have mountains today. We're on Mount Washington right now. And right up top on Mount Washington, we have the very thing that the city of Pittsburgh worships, Iron City, alcohol and sports. It's what the city worships. And in ancient Israel's history, all their turning points were at mounts and mountains. Think of Mount Carmel, Mount Ararat, Mount Zion. Matthew wants us to think about Mount Sinai here. Now, do you remember what was given at Mount Sinai? I know you have your masks on, so speak up a little bit. What was given at Mount Sinai? The law, the Ten Commandments, right? Another translation for that from the Hebrew word is the teachings, meaning that everything that Moses taught came from the teachings of Mount Sinai. He went up to a mountain to receive a teaching. But there's something different about that first Mount Sinai. Only one person was allowed to ascend that mount. Look what we read, if you remember from our Exodus series in Exodus chapter 19. And Moses said to the Lord, starting in verse 23, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Do you see the similarities? Two mounts. Two prophets going up to the mountains. And on the first Mount Sinai, you cannot meet with God unless two things happen, or one of two things happens. Either you consecrate yourself, 
or God comes down to you. And in King Jesus, God doesn't tell us to consecrate ourselves first because we cannot come up to him. He first comes down to us in the person and work of Jesus. Hear this good news, church. Before you ever come to God, he first comes to you. Before you ever try to ascend the hill, Jesus first comes down and invites you in. Christ came down because he knows you cannot clean up to come up. Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, he is God, the exact imprint of his nature, first comes down to us because we cannot clean up to come up. This is the good news of the gospel. This is an altogether different type of mount, that when Jesus sat down, he came off of his throne in heaven so that his disciples can draw near Because he came down from his throne first, you now have access to God. You can come sit with God. You can come be with God, not because of your own merit, but because of what Jesus has done. Unlike Mount Sinai, where only Moses could ascend the mount, Jesus comes down off his throne so that all the crowds can come and sit near him. But what did he come down to do? What did Jesus come down to do? Not only to heal the sick, he did do that. Not only to give sight to the blind, he did that indeed. But he came to teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. We just saw these two mounts. Now let's look at these two prophets. Second point, the two prophets. Starting in verse 2. Matthew writes, and he opened his mouth and taught them. See, Moses on Mount Sinai was known as a prophet. He was a teacher. Like we covered earlier, Matthew wants us to see the parallels between Moses and Israel's story and Jesus's story here. That Jesus is the greater prophet after Moses, that Moses even prophesied about, that there's one who's coming after me, who is greater than me, who's going to fulfill all of the laws of Israel. Jonathan Pennington, one of my professors in seminaries, recently wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And look at these connections he drew. The events of Moses's and Jesus's lives line up remarkably. Dreams connected to their births the slaughter of children from which they were spared miraculously as infants, flight from the land only to return later at God's direction, temptation in the wilderness, 40 days and nights of fasting on a mount of revelation and passing through the Jordan River. Aren't those similarities fascinating? Isn't it remarkable? But there's one key difference. In order for Moses to open up his mouth and teach, God had to speak first. But when Jesus opens up his mouth and teaches, it's with authority, we read at the end of chapter 7. It's his own words. Moses had to say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, I am who I am. These are my words. These are my teachings. This is my authority. You see, in that word authority, there's another word. Do you know what it is? Author. 
An author is an originator of their own words. An author is an originator of their teachings. And this is the authority of Jesus because this is centered on his teaching. Now, you cannot see this in the Eng any English translation, but you see this in the Greek, that every pronoun for he that talks about Jesus, it begins each sentence because Matthew wants us to see that the mount, the teachings, and everything is focused on Jesus. It's centered on his word, it's centered on his teachings, and it's centered on his authority. Jesus is at the center of the sermon, amen? And Jesus, as he teaches, he wants us to teach, he wants to teach us how to flourish. He wants to teach us how to thrive. He wants to teach us what it means to live a whole life in God, right side up. Now, this last week, I read a, a story about a, a jet fighter pilot who's doing uh, air maneuvers at nighttime. And when she made a, a turn to where she thought she was making an ascent, because she was in the dark, she actually made a descent and crashed into the ground. Now, this tragic story is a parable for our human existence, that we are often flying at high speeds in the dark, not even knowing if we are upside down or right side up. This is why Jesus' teachings about the kingdom seem upside down to us, but in all reality, we are just flying upside down in the dark, not knowing if we are right side up or upside down. And Jesus, through this teaching, is saying, let me turn you right side up and turn the lights on for you. Let me show you how to live. His teachings will seem upside down because what Jesus teaches is not just right behavior. Jesus doesn't want behavior modification. Do you hear me? Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your whole life. That's why he says to his disciples, he was tell them that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never Never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you feel the weight of that? Next week, we'll see that blessedness, makarios, is this constant state that we are to be in as we are persecuted, as we mourn, as we are poor. That term makarios, blessedness, means to flourish. It's the difference between surviving in life. Anybody there right now? Trying to survive or thriving. And it's thriving as you weep. It's thriving as you're persecuted. It's thriving as people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. And then he tells the disciples, which is the center of the sermon, look with me in your Bibles in Matthew Five, chapter 48, he says this, you therefore, he's talking to you, you who call yourselves followers of Jesus, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jeez, thanks, Jesus. How? 
How are we to be perfect? If you're anything like me, I'm just saying this is impossible. And that is the right place to be as you're listening to these words. On your own, it is impossible. Because that word perfect is best understood as whole or complete. You must be whole, holy as your father is whole and holy. It's not just having the right actions, church. Listen to me. It's not just having the right behaviors. It's having the right heart, the right motivations. And how do we do this? Jesus says, don't be like the irreligious and the religious hypocrites. That's how. Now, all throughout the news, the news media, they love to feed us stories about people who have this public persona of having everything together, right? We know those folks. Then all of a sudden, their life falls apart, crashes, because their private life doesn't match up with their public life. We see this with men and women in the political realm. We even see this, sadly, with men and women within the church. Their private life doesn't match up with their public life. Now, typically, that's what we think of when we think of the word hypocrisy, no? Public not matching with the private. Now, I want to keep that definition there. And I want to make that definition a little bit thicker. It is that, but more. Hypocrisy is that, but it's more. When Jesus uses the term hypocrisy, do not be a hypocrite. He talks about a greater righteousness. It's a teaching that we must be perfect, whole, and complete. He's not only talking about public versus private. He's talking about outward and inward. He's talking about your outward life mirroring and uniting with your inward life. Do you hear this? This is the whole aim of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greater prophet than Moses speaking to you right now. Your righteousness has to exceed. It has to be greater. Greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. What do they all lack? What do the Pharisees lack? Pureness of heart. Pureness of heart. If you want to get into the kingdom, your heart must be pure, Jesus is saying. Because these hypocrites, they do all the right things for the wrong reasons. Their behavior looks good, but their hearts are evil. Does Jesus, the greater prophet, want our good works? Absolutely. But he doesn't want performative obedience to get his acceptance. Jesus, no, he's saying, I don't want you to work for your salvation. I want you to work out of the salvation that I've already worked for you. Both irreligion and religion says you have to perform in order to be welcomed. You have to perform in order to come. Irreligion says you can't do X, Y, and Z if you want to belong. 
Religion says you must do A, B, and C if you want to be welcome. But Jesus said, I've done A through Z so that you can be welcomed into my kingdom. I've done the work for you because you cannot do the work on your own. This is the crux of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus will invite you into as we journey up on that mountain and sit with him. Sit with the greater prophet on that mount. And the question for me and the question for you is will you let him teach you? Will you let him teach you? Will you follow him? Will you be honest enough with the one who honestly knows your heart already? And you might be asking the question that I'm asking is, how do we become whole? If that's how we get into the kingdom, how do we become whole? How do we become complete? How do we become perfect as our heavenly father is perfect? And it's the same way that God has been preaching to us ever since Genesis 1, even through that lesser prophet Moses. We cannot get this backwards, y'all. It's not God's statutes. Then you're saved by God. It's salvation from God. Then God's statutes. It's God's redemption from Egypt. And then come the rules on Sinai. We can't get this backwards. It's not obey, then you get grace. It's you get grace that gives you the power to obey. This is the whole point of the sermon. The Ten Commandments on the first mount followed salvation from Egypt, grace from Egypt. And now the, the commandments, the teachings from the second mount. And the greater prophet, this teaching follows grace. And you might ask, where's grace? He's sitting right before us. Do you remember in Titus chapter 2? Grace did what? Grace appeared. Grace, Pastor Andrew told us, is a person. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. It's grace first in Christ, then teachings from Christ. The Apostle John writes this in first, oh, sorry, in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. He says this about Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. What is he full of? Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from him, his fullness, we all received. What is that? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace has appeared because Jesus has come to us first, and he now invites us in. Christology, for all of you Bible nerds out there along with me. Christology, who Jesus is, must come before. It is the key to the heart of Christian practice, what we do as Christians. It's orthodoxy before orthopraxy. It's the indicative 
the truth about God's grace that leads to the imperative how you respond to God's grace. Don't get this backwards. You don't respond to the law to then get grace. You respond to the grace that you already have to then have the power to live out the law. Do you see that? Without the Son of God who has appeared first, this sermon is not only impossible, it's powerless. Without Jesus, this sermon is not only impossible, it's powerless. Can I get an amen? But since this sermon's commands are accompanied by the commander, we have the power. They had the power in the presence of Jesus. They have access to the power to follow his commands because grace has appeared in Jesus. And now they have it and we have it. And how do we have it? It's because Jesus, who is the greater prophet, will not be like Moses when he finds out people are sinning and worshiping a golden half at calf at the bottom of a mountain. What does Moses do? He comes down hot and heavy and angry and breaks the command and the tablets at the bottom of the mount, but not Jesus. What Jesus does when he knows your hearts, what Jesus does when he knows your thoughts, he does not come down from this mountain to destroy you. He comes down the mountain to be destroyed for you to be broken on your behalf. This Jesus, who is the greater prophet, he knows your deepest secrets. He knows your deepest fears, your deepest struggles of sin, the darkness that's within. He knows when you put up a front and posture. He knows when you're trying to self-medicate with behavior modification. He knows when your obedience is performative and not from the heart. And yet he doesn't come off the mount utterly disappointed in you. No, he comes off this mount to have compassion on you, to be with you. He comes down off that mountain to go up to another one, to where we deserve to be. The wages of sin is death. He goes to that mount, the mount called Golgotha. He doesn't come down angry. He comes down with compassion. Jesus, he's going to come off the mountain to go to another one to be killed for our sins. This King Jesus, who was perfect, even as his heavenly father was perfect. This Jesus, whose righteousness exceeded the law who exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees, this King Jesus, who was the blessed one, the blessed one who mourned, who was poor, who was meek, who hungered and thirst for righteousness, who was merciful, who was pure in heart, who was a peacemaker to make peace between God and his enemies. King Jesus, who loved his enemies to the point of death even death on the cross, this King Jesus, as they persecuted him and reviled him, what was he doing from that cross? He was praying for those who persecute him as he will command us later in this sermon. You see, what is required to enter the kingdom of heaven, we don't have on our own. But Jesus does. 
And he freely gives it to us at the cost of his own life. Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin so that you and I can become the righteousness, the completeness, the wholeness of God through faith in him. It's by grace through faith in Christ. This king who was enthroned in heaven is now exalted in, on the cross. This king, he died so that you can live. This king, he was flogged so that you can flourish. And this king was raised to new life on the third day, ascended to the Father in heaven, and now he gives us his promised presence that gives us power to hear his words, be doers of his words, and teach others this word. I love the way my friend Rob describes the gospel. It is this. You can't. Jesus can and did. And now he gives you the power. And now you can. That is the whole message of this Sermon on the Mount. You can't. Jesus can and did so that you now can. And whatever you do, please do not be like that foolish professor height who just sees Jesus as a good teacher and refuses to see him as king and savior. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, Jesus doesn't afford you that reality just to look at him as a good teacher. No, no one would dare call someone a good teacher who claims to be God. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. Lord, King of the universe and church, will you listen to the one who first came down to us? Who came down to live the life that you could not live and die the death we deserve to die so that you can be made right with God? This, this, is the point of the whole sermon. You can't. Jesus can and did. So now you can. Come and listen to the one who has first come down for you and on behalf of you. Oh, isn't this grace? This is how we have access into the kingdom through the king who laid down his life for us. So now we listen to his words. And as we close today, I want to encourage you towards one thing church-wide. This is something that we're going to be doing across the church. It's totally voluntarily you, you can do this, but we want to encourage everyone in your community groups. We want to encourage everyone across the church. We're going to work on not only listening to Jesus's words, but memorizing Jesus's words. Memorizing his words, because at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, go therefore, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teaching. What are we to teach? This. What we come and listen to. We teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And so on, where is it right now? On our, our church app, you'll see a Bible reading plan down there. We will have a plan released to you uh, at the end of the day tomorrow. You'll get reminders. You'll be memorizing one verse every couple days. And what we hope is that you would memorize the passage with your community groups, with those who you're discipling, so that when you come here next Sunday, you have the passage memorized that I'm preaching on. 
so that you just don't expect me to teach, but you are disciples who now go out and teach. Amen? And we don't teach in order to gain approval by God, right? We teach because we already have that heavenly approval from our Father in heaven. Amen? Let's go out, invite others to come to the one. Come and listen to the one who has come to us first. We forget that simple truth, don't we? We forget that we don't have to work to come up the mountain. Jesus gives us this beautiful symbol in communion. You'll see communion now spread out. 